to hear these words. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you keep looking at one another? I have heard, he said, that there is grain in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he feared that harm might come to him. Thus the sons of Israel were among the other people who came to buy grain, for the famine had reached the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. It was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. And when Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. Although Joseph had recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Joseph also remembered the dreams that he had dreamed about them. And so he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. But he said to them, no, you have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said, we, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of a certain man in the land of Canaan. The youngest, however, is now with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is just as I have said to you, you are spies. Here is how you shall be tested. As Pharaoh lives, you shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Let one of you go and bring your brother while the rest of you remain in prison in order that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. Or else, as Pharaoh lives, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in prison for three days. And on the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here where you are imprisoned. The rest of you shall go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. Thus your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they agreed to do so. They said to one another, Alas, we are paying the penalty for what we did to our brother. We saw his anguish when he pleaded with us, but we would not listen. This, that is why this anguish has come upon us. Then Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to wrong the boy? But you would not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them since he spoke with them through an interpreter. And he turned away from them and wept. Then he returned and spoke to them. And he picked out Simeon and had him bound before their eyes. Joseph then gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to return every man's money to his sack and to give them provisions for their journey. This was done for them. They loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and let's pray. God, we come to you on this beautiful morning. 
thanking you for sleep, thanking you for the sun, thanking you for an opportunity yet again to gather and to worship and to learn and to be together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would be with us this morning, that you would speak through this story, though thousands of years old, that you would help us to understand what it says to us on this very day. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. Earlier uh, this week, I was in conversation with someone, and they were talking about uh, one of their children and how um, one of their children was having a struggle in a, in a dating relationship. And, and, and as we kind of finished up that conversation, I, I said, you know what, I am so glad that I am done with that stage of life. Amen. I did not enjoy dating that much. It was fine, but man, there was a lot of pain that came through dating, right? I mean, not that any of you have ever broken up with anybody, but I have. And, 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 and after you break up with somebody, right, it's pretty painful and it takes a little while to kind of get over it, right? And there's lots of, uh, of tears and there's pain and there's agony and there's questions and all of those things, right? And so, and so usually I would try to say, okay, how can I go out of sight, out of mind, right? And, and if I could do that, right, then slowly but surely... I'd begin to feel better, right? Until finally one day I'd wake up and I'd say, wait, I don't really miss that person that much anymore. And the sun is still shining and and there's new hope and life is going to go on. And it was amazing. And usually it was within about 24 hours of that, that all of a sudden I would see that person right? Or they would call me, or perhaps today you would see a picture of this person on Facebook, and all of a sudden, just like that, you were back in the valley again. Just when you thought you had finally made it out, all of a sudden, you were saddened again, right? And I have a sense that that's kind of what this was like for Joseph, that Joseph had clearly broken up with his family, right? Much to his chagrin. And he had taken a lot of time. It had taken a long time for him to be able to get over it. But as we saw last week, it seems like things are finally looking up for Joseph, right? He's, he's kind of ascended into, uh, into the royalty, if you will, of Egypt. Things are looking up. In fact, they're looking up so much, as we heard a little bit last week, that Moses is... E- Moses, where in the world did that come from? That Joseph... That Joseph all of a sudden begins naming his children out of the fact that he's so excited that he has moved on, right? I mean, Manasseh, right? What is that? It means God has made me forget all of my hardship and all of my father's house. Ephraim means fruit. And he says, God has made me fruitful in the land of my misfortunes, right? In other words, Joseph thinks that he has finally made it. He is moving on. And then his sorry sack of siblings walk through the doors. And just like that, he's back to where he started. Now, Before we kind of move on with that, let's just take a brief step back and remember where the passage began, okay? It began in Canaan, right? And it's almost this kind of comedic beginning, if you will, because there all of a sudden, there is Jacob, and he's sitting there, and they're in the middle of the famine. The famine had reached Canaan. And all of a sudden, what does he say? Guys, 
What are you doing? They're just, you're just standing around and staring at one another. Why don't you do something so that we don't starve, right? It seems that they were just sitting there kind of looking at each other, twiddling their thumbs. And Jacob's like, what's wrong with these kids of mine, right? Why don't they actually just do something, right? And as if kind of awoken up from their stupor, all of a sudden they say, oh yeah, all right. And so they decide to go to Egypt, right? Which of course is where they are. They go into Egypt, they walk in, they bow, right? Which of course we all remember most of us, at least the dream that Joseph had. And so the question is, what is Joseph going to do? What is he going to do now that these sorry sack of siblings are there right in front of him? Is he going to say, ha ha, I told you so. See who's bowing now? Or, or is he just going to throw him in prison immediately and say, I don't even want to talk to you? Or, or is he going to go and embrace them and say, it has been far too long? Well, what he ends up doing is he ends up kind of interrogating them, right? And it's hard to know why is he interrogating them? Is he doing it because of the fact that, he's, uh, that he wants to get back at them and he wants to be revengeful? Or is he doing it because of the fact that he wants to see whether or not they have changed, right? And, and people oftentimes go on one side or the other. My guess is, of course, that the answer is Yes, right? He's probably doing both maybe, right? I mean, maybe he's both a little bit angry. Who of us would not be angry at the brother who had sold us into slavery? Am I right? Okay, most of us are honest here, right? Uh, But at the same time, he's probably also really wondering, right? I mean, he seems like he has some grace. He's wondering whether or not they've actually changed, right? And so, so there he is, and so he does it. And it doesn't take him very long until he begins to accuse them of things, right? And and one of the interesting things about this little paragraph here, this little brief conversation that they have, is that three different times it kind of harkens back to what Joseph has had to live through, right? The first thing he says to them is, why, you know, are you spies here in order to spy on the nakedness of our land? Now, that's a weird kind of phraseology to use. And, And so part of it probably just means that the nakedness between the two lands, there's not like a big wall in between the two countries. So it's easy to go back and forth on the borders. But it also would harken back to the 37th chapter, whenever the brothers had stripped Joseph down Naked, right? The nine o'clock didn't want to say naked. Naked, right? And thrown him into the pit, right? And so, and so it harkens back to that, right? So you kind of, you begin to see some of that. In other words, this is still kind of on Joseph's mind, not too surprisingly, right? And so not only then does he say that, then what does he do? He throws them in prison, right? And so what's happening is that these brothers are being thrown in prison after having been unjustly accused of something. Sound familiar? Yeah, right? And so they're there in prison, and then they get out, and then Joseph says, okay, here's the plan. You go and get Benjamin, but you have to keep one brother here. In other words, I want to see whether or not you leave this one brother for dead, or whether you will actually come back this time in order to get him. So the brothers, they are obviously in great anguish, right? They know, they feel like this is because of what we have done. And they say to one another, we looked at his anguish, we heard his pleas, and yet we did not listen. Reuben, because there is always a Reuben in the group, says, well, guys, 
I mean, this is not on me. I tried to tell you all that we shouldn't do that. And now, look what you have gotten us into, right? And so it's interesting, right after this, because they don't know that Joseph can hear this, but right after this moment then, Joseph flees. He, he, he has to get out. He begins to weep. Joseph begins to break, if you will. And then a few moments later, it seems, he comes back in and he tells them to go on, minus Simeon. And he gives them their food. And unbeknownst to them, he gives them their money as well. And one of the things as I was thinking about the story this week that seems kind of fascinating is the reality. It's, it's, as we've talked about before, it's such a real story. The reality of the heaviness of brokenness, of secrets, and of sin. And the way that it shatters communities. Whether it's a community of family, or a community of faith, or a community even of a nation. That when there is sin and brokenness and secrets, that there is pain and it percolates or it goes through all of the community. And one of the things that the story does is it it shows us in a lot of different ways how people deal with that brokenness, right? For Joseph, right, clearly the victim of this brokenness and this sin, what happens to him? Well, uh, he he gets thrown in a pit, as we talked about a while back. He, He gets thrown into darkness with little light, with wondering whether or not he will ever get out, whether or not he has a future at all, right? The brokenness, not only that, it then captivates him, right? He's, he's not free. He's enslaved. And he's, then he's thrown into jail. And then, as we recall a few weeks ago, he, he begins to wonder, right? Am I even going to be remembered at all? Do I matter? Do I matter to my family? Do I matter to this person I just um, gave this, interpreted this dream to? Do I matter even perhaps to God? And a part of what happens because of the brokenness that we live in is we begin to ask questions like those. Is there hope? Is there light? Do I matter? But it's not just Joseph who's kind of wrestling with these things. It's Jacob as well. I mean, we remember perhaps back at the very beginning of this that Jacob, after he hears about his son Joseph, or after they tell him what happened, what what does he say? He says, I am going to grieve how long? Forever even into the next life. I am going to grieve. And then this week, we see at the very beginning of our passage that he does not allow Benjamin to go. Benjamin, you can't go. In other words, I am afraid for the future. And because of what he has had to endure, he can't picture or dream that there is anything more. He wants to stop risking. He wants to just hold everything tightly. That brokenness and pain oftentimes causes us to freeze and to just stick here and stick close and not reach out at all. But it also clearly begins to shape the brothers. Now, we don't really think about the brothers a whole lot because we don't like the brothers, even though the brothers are probably a lot more like us than Joseph is. And so we don't really think about the way that this is shaped it. It's shaped it. It's clear, right? I mean, as soon as something bad happens, what do they immediately begin to think? This is our punishment, right? In other words, and this is probably not the first time they've thought this. 
In other words, whenever you do something, that guilt is always right there. That unconfessed guilt is always there on the tip of your tongue. It's always ready to, to come out. Oh, that's why. This is because of this. It's because of that. And so there's always that sense. But it's also interesting to see the way that they respond to this brokenness. Right? Again, remember, what are they, well, this is something that we oftentimes do, probably most frequently do. Whenever, you know, whenever faced with our own sin, our own brokenness, what do we do? We find somebody else to blame, right? This is the Reuben effect, right? I mean, as soon as something like that happens, what do you do? You find it must be someone else's fault. There's no way that this is my fault, right? And you think, Reuben, what is wrong with you? Yeah, I mean, Reuben, it was nice because you said, no, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in a pit. I'll come back and get him maybe. Well, that's great, Rube. But maybe what you could have done is said, hey, guys, maybe this is a dumb idea altogether. Right? Or Reuben certainly didn't have to give in to the years and years of deception, right? He wasn't there telling Jacob, hey, you know what? Uh, that's not really what happened, actually. Uh, we just sold him off to slavery. No, he, he, he continued. He watched his father in the midst of all of that agony, in the midst of all of his pain. And yet he can sit here and say, I knew it. This is y'all's fault, Right? So we as a people, we have a proclivity. I know I do that. As soon as we're accused of something, as soon as we're faced with something, the first thing we want to do is find somebody else to blame. But the second thing it seems to me that we oftentimes do is something interesting that happens at the very beginning of this passage. It's a question that, that, that scholars have asked and people have wrestled with, with this story, which is this very simple question, which is why in the world were the brothers just hanging out and not doing anything? Because this is not difficult stuff. When you are hungry, what do you do? You go find food. This is not something we have to teach people. Right? As soon as you have a baby, the baby knows. The baby is looking for mama. The baby knows where food is. Right? Well, you don't have to teach your child to go to the refrigerator. They know to go to the refrigerator. They don't always know to close the refrigerator door. But they know how to open the refrigerator. They know where to go. They know you go to a restaurant. They know you go, you go to the grocery store. When you are hungry, you go get food. And it's not like Jacob was the only one who knew about Egypt. Because if you've got all land of famine and people are saying there's food in Egypt, everyone knows where the food is. So why in the world were the brothers just hanging out when they are hungry? Victor Hamilton makes a suggestion that I find rather appealing, which is this. They didn't want to have to think about Egypt at all. And why wouldn't they have wanted to think about Egypt? Because it was a vivid reminder of the brokenness. It was a vivid reminder of what they had done. And while I'm certain they didn't think that they were going to see Joseph in the middle of Egypt, if he was even alive, I don't question for a moment that they had always, ever since that moment, done everything they could to forget about Egypt. And they don't want to think about it. They don't want to walk towards it. They certainly don't want to walk inside of it. And they definitely don't want to ask the Egyptians for something. 
The cold, hard reality is that brokenness, whether or not it's because of something we have done or not, when it comes to brokenness and sin, we want as much as we possibly can to simply ignore it. To act like it isn't even there at all. It makes our lives much easier, even if we are starving. I was thinking about this story. I'm oftentimes intrigued by how the Spirit of God is at work. That the Spirit of God would know that on July 10th of 2016, that we would be looking at a story that talks about the heaviness, the brokenness, the pain, and the sin of a community like a family and how that was shaping them and tearing the family apart. On the same Sunday, after a week of a community, a nation that is grappling with the brokenness and the pain and the sin that is going on all around us. You see, when I, uh, when I think about the sermon the week before, I don't just think about, okay, what, what, what does God say generally to us? I don't, I don't ask, okay, Lord, what would you have wanted to hear five years ago about this? Or Lord, what would you say to us in three years about this passage? I'm asking the question, what would you have us to hear today? And sometimes the word, it seems to me, that I'm supposed to share is a word of joy. It's something that's going to go down smoothly. It's going to bring happiness. And sometimes it is a more difficult word that I know will not bring happiness. It will bring emails into my inbox or phone calls. And yet... The reality is, as a people of God, we have to be willing not just to face the joyful things about life, but also those things that are more challenging, that are more difficult. One of the things as I was uh, preparing, as I was reflecting on this passage, was, 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 was again going back to Reuben, right? Again going back to this reality of how quickly we like to blame. I've been thinking about that, especially when it comes to um, uh, police officers and how intrigued I am. I've been thinking about this for a couple of years now, about how quickly we are to blame. We don't have to know the story. We don't even need to know half the story. We're good with 10% of the story before we know exactly what has happened. And we are more than happy to figure out who was wrong and who was right. And, and, and I think it's very easy for us. I mean, I don't know how many of you have either been in the military or in the police or been a fireman. I can't imagine. Imagine what it would be like to every time when you pull somebody over, if you have no idea what it is that is within the car, to not have any idea of whether or not there's a gun or not, to, to live with that, to not know whether or not the next time you clock in will be the last time. It's easy for me behind a desk to be able to make quick accusations. A couple of weeks ago, I, I read this thing, this research that showed that firemen, this just happened to be looking at firemen, how much shorter their lifespan was than the average person. And the reason for that is not because they anything about a fire. It's because of the fact that they are living under constant stress. Now, that doesn't mean that there are not bad police officers. There are bad police officers, just like there are bad teachers, like there are bad policemen, like there are bad pastors. 
But it does mean that before we get too quick to throw accusations, it might be wise for us to begin to wonder, what is it, what is it like to continually deal with evil, brokenness, and pain? And what might that do to you? But the other thing I was thinking about quite a bit this week is the issue of race. Now, honestly, that's a little bit more dangerous for me to talk about here. I mean, as soon as I bring up racial issues, there will be some of you who will just shut down. Some of you who will say, Jerry's getting too political. He should just stick to the Bible. But as I thought about it this week, I realized that I, I, couldn't, I couldn't not say anything especially not with what I was reading in Genesis. Last Thursday, uh, just a few days ago, I had lunch with some missionaries. Uh, they're, from, they're missionaries to Iraq. They're here on furlough. And so we were having lunch together, and they asked me, they said, they said um, you know, do you have any kind of racial issues here in Indianapolis? And I kind of I smiled to myself, and I thought, well, it depends upon what you mean by Indianapolis. If you mean where I live in Indianapolis as a white guy, I got no troubles. I mean, I'm living, I'm living happy and free. I, I, I'm living pretty blissful. That doesn't mean that there aren't some things that are going on. But I can, I can assure you that by and large, for me at least, things are pretty sweet and easy. I can stand behind the fence, uh, a.k.a. 465, and I can, I, can, I can feel pretty good about things. And I want to be honest with you. I like it. I really do. But I also want to be honest with you and tell you that it hasn't always been like that for me. You see, well, I went to high school, as many of you know, in Pensacola, Florida. And this is not the Pensacola, Florida, or the Florida that most of you go visit, um, or most of you uh, snowbird to, okay? This is not even Pensacola Beach, right? That's a whole different world. I was in Pensacola, and this is, it's affectionately called L.A., right? Which is lower Alabama. This is the deep south, where racial issues are always rampant. And I went to high school in a place where they bust in, African-Americans, quite a few African-Americans. And, and the high school that I went to, and that, in those four years that I went there, especially that first year, there, there, there was a fight pretty much every day, usually in the cafeteria at some point. And, and, and there was someone who was expelled after bringing a gun. And, and there was a film crew that was uh, following a, a guy who said he was going to start a riots during the L.A. riots. And, and, and one of my classmates murdered somebody and was convicted of that. And on the day that I graduated, um, on the bus ride home, one of one young lady was stabbed and killed. And, and there was always something, it seemed, always something racial happening. And I'm going to be as honest as possible. I learned pretty quickly what I should do as a scrawny white kid, which is that I learned pretty quickly that these are the hallways you go down, down and these are not the hallways you go down. That, that, that this is how you look when you look at people, and this is how you don't look when you look at certain people. And this is what you need to watch for when people are walking towards you to see what they look like, so you decide whether you go left or whether you go right. It was a constant, uh, constant mental fatigue. I was fearful almost every day of those four years, and I could not wait to get out. And when I got out, I said, I am done. 
I am not thinking about these racial issues anymore because I wasn't thinking about it. I was living into it. And so it's no surprising that I had to go to the most lily white of colleges in Tennessee. I didn't want to think about it. And for the last 24 years, I have lived in that blissfulness by and large. Oh, that doesn't mean that I'm not associated with people who look different than I have. Sure, I have. I've, I've done those things. I've worked alongside them, done all these things that most of us do. But by and large, if I am honest, my life has echoed the line of the brothers. To look at their anguish, to hear their pleas, and to simply not listen. There is one thing about that time in high school that continues to haunt me. I didn't think about it much then. Quite frankly, I was just trying to survive, but I have thought about it a lot more since then. Which is that out of those hundreds of African Americans that came to our school, that were bussed into our school, probably 80% or more lived in a place called Escambia Arms. Escambia Arms was a, was, a, was a Section 8 housing, government housing, what we called simply a project. And Escambia Arms, it's still there, I think. If you go, it has, it, it, it's an apartment complex, but it's surrounded, I kid you not, by a wall. It's got to be 8 or 10 feet high. And on top of that wall is razor fence. And there's one exit in, and there's one exit out. And it's always guarded by a policeman. And my guess is that almost every day within those walls, there is some act of violence. I mean, we would hear about these acts of violence. And that every single day, they were sitting there living in squalor. Day after day after day. Children who were living in these kinds of situations. Living basically like caged animals. And then they would come to our school. And should it not be surprising that some of them were angry with what had been dealt to them? No child should have to live in that extreme squalor and with violence each and every day. No child. And while I know that this goes across racial lines, the reality is it afflicts African Americans more than it will ever afflict almost any of us. kept hearing that line. You've been able to look at our anguish. You've heard our pain. But you did not listen. I'm not so foolish as to believe that I can stand up here on this one day or that I could stand up here for the next 20 years and try to tell you how we fix this. 
But I do believe from the bottom of my heart that there is one thing that at least I need to do, which is to confess how easily I have stopped listening or caring, how easily I have ignored it, how easily I have decided to say, well, whatever happens in the Egypt that is south of 465, so be it. I'm not big into mass confessions because I know that in mass confessions there are always some people in there who say, well, I don't need to confess this. And so I want you to know as we think about this, as we think about perhaps even just one small step of examining our own hearts, of perhaps even confessing of how easily we have ignored what is going on, that if you don't feel like you need to do this, then God speed to you and blessings to you and I ask that you pray for me and pray for others like me. But I know beyond the shadow of a doubt because I hear about it in the papers, I read about it, I, I hear it on the news, I read about it in the papers. I don't drive the streets, but I hear enough about it to know that while we may not have projects like Escambia Arms, that we have particular communities that almost daily are dealing with violence and poverty. And perhaps if nothing else, we can gather together this morning and simply examine our hearts and ask, is there anything that we have to confess? Now, I thank God that ZPC is involved with Shepherd Community on the east side. I thank God that we have a food pantry. I thank God that we do things that certainly cross over the racial divide. But I also have a sense, a gnawing sense that it's not yet enough. One of the fascinating things about this particular story in Genesis is when Joseph begins to weep. When does he begin to cry? Not when he sees his brothers. Not when he hears that his father is alive. He begins to cry after he overhears their confession. They didn't realize it was a confession, but it was when they admitted that what they had done was wrong, that this was some kind of punishment for the sin that they have done. There is something about confession. It doesn't bring reconciliation, but it is a beginning. And I can't help but think that there may be others like me who need to be able to fess up to the realities of our finding it easier to ignore than to face the brokenness that is rampant in our community and in our country. Now, I want you to hear me. My desire is not for you to go home and just feel guilty. I'm not asking those of us who are white to go home and to feel guilty for being white. There is nobody who is whiter than I am. I just got back from two weeks in California in the sun, and I am still remarkably white. And I'm not asking you to go home and to feel guilty about where you live. I live in the village of the village of Zionsville, in the bubble within the bubble. But what I am asking... What role do we in the church play? Not just the black church, but the white church as well. 
I am asking that we examine our hearts and we say, are we not called to lead? Are we not called to lead in the way that we grieve first? Are we not called to lead in the way that we say we will not ignore what is happening, even if it's not happening down the street from us? Are we not called to lead in the way that says we are going to bring hope and we believe in hope that no darkness can overcome the light of Jesus the Christ, not because of who we are, but because of Jesus who was born into the brokenness in order to help heal our brokenness, that we might then go out and do whatever it might be in order to help bring reconciliation and hope and health and wholeness. Let us not be content to ignore it because it doesn't affect us. Let us not be content to simply blame. Let us be a people who know that we are called, most of us at least, to confession. Not to stay there. But to know that it is the beginning of our call to go out into the brokenness of our world. And so let us begin by praying. God, we come to you this morning in the midst of a complicated and broken We do not have all of the answers. We probably don't even have two or three. Some of us are wondering, God, what we can do. Some of us are wondering if we should do anything at all. But God, I at least come to you this morning in a confession that I have been far too eager to ignore the brokenness that is so nearby. It is so much easier to get caught up in the busyness. There's enough things that I have going on to not see the anguish not hear the pain, to not listen. I pray, God, that you would break our hearts for what breaks yours. Help us, God, to seek after your face. Help us to know what it means be about more than just who I am or who ZPC is, but to be about what you are and who you are. Forgive us. Amen.